in the beginning, right? That's the first words of the Bible. It's how it starts. And admittedly, the beginning is a good place to start. But it also means, in the midst of that, that something new is starting, something that's going to change everything. God's about to break into the world and do something completely new and different that no one has ever seen before. I think these are the words that are echoing in Mark's ears as he writes his gospel or he writes his book, because it starts the sec- exactly the same way, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I think he's connecting those two, saying something new is starting, something that's going to change everything. God is once again going to break into the world and do something the world has not yet seen. So as we come to the book of Mark, we think about new beginnings. Maybe you feel like you just want to start over, like life isn't going the way I expected. Can I just hit the redo button and get a re- go back again and do it over? Or maybe you, oh, this is going to be painful, but I just thought of this one. Maybe you have the ball on the one-yard line and you just want to hold on to it so you get a couple more plays instead of trying, sorry, I had to do it. My team won yesterday, so it's okay. First SEC win in three years, so we're doing better. Anyway, sorry, I got off track. Maybe your spiritual life has become dry and complacent and you're looking for a fresh start. Or maybe everything is going good for you. And you want to know, how can I help other people get a fresh start, right? Especially in Christ. And that's what Mark is going to show us throughout his book, how we can have a new beginning, a fresh start to be a part of something big that God is doing in the world. And so we're going to look at the journey of discipleship in the book of Mark of how to become a follower of Christ and that begins this morning. So if you're following along, we're going to be, it's page 887 in the Bible in front of you. Um, we're going to do the book of Mark. We're going to do the first 20 verses. Um, usually we read that all together up front, but for today, we're going to read it in pieces as we go. Um, so you don't have to listen to me read 20 verses in a row this morning. So we're just going to start at the beginning and work our way through. So the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this is written by Mark. Um, essentially, probably with help from Peter. So think of Mark and Peter hanging out and Peter just like telling him stories um, of what Jesus has done so that he can record them. As a result of that, this isn't necessarily chronological. Um, If you compare it to like Luke, who's a history guy, um, it might be in a slightly different order, but it's still organized very purposefully. um, And we'll see how that is as we go along. Um, This is written before the year 70, probably in the 60s, Um, so within about 30 years of Jesus' death and resurrection, so all these guys are still alive, there's eyewitnesses, there's ways to understand what happened. But if you remember, we just finished 1 Peter, and 1 Peter was written about the same time. And one of the things we said at the beginning of 1 Peter is that the church is being persecuted. They are suffering in this time. So it's that lens that Mark is also understanding and seeing as he's writing. Remember, this is about the time that Nero blames the big fire on Christians and begins to round them up and persecute them um, and martyr them for their faith. And so Mark's writing in this to help people endure, to help them keep going as we go along. And so I want to take these terms kind of one at a time, just even in this first verse, because there's actually a lot here, even in the first verse. So first he says, it's the gospel, 
right? Gospel means good news. It's most often used in announcing some significant event which made a change in history. Um, Frequently here, it's the birth of the Roman emperor, um, Augustus. So that was a life-changing event for everybody who was in the Roman Empire, which was a significant portion of the world at this time. So for us, it's not just the good news of a political or a military leader, but the good news of Jesus. Right? It's the good news that Jesus is going to preach, that he's going to give us in this book, but it's also the good news about Jesus. So he is the messenger delivering the news, but he's also the message, which makes this a little bit unique compared to some other good news. So then he calls him Jesus. Jesus is the Greek from the Hebrew word Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation, or the salvation of Yahweh. And then he calls him, right, Jesus Christ. Christ is the, kind of transliterates the, the Greek word Christos, that means anointed, And so the Hebrew word for anointed means Messiah, which is obviously a term that you hear around here often. And so, yes, Jesus Christ did become a common name for to refer to Jesus, but here Mark also wants us to keep in mind that he's talking about the Messiah, the one who was to come. He calls him the Son of God, right at the beginning, right? He's not holding anything back. He's kind of giving you the full story right up front in the first verse. He identifies him as the Son of God, kind of expressing Jesus' unique relationship to God. It includes the concept of Messiah, but it also signifies the nature of Jesus' relationship with God, sort of a subordinate one, as his Son who would obey God and serve his will. This is the theme that Mark is going to use throughout here as talking about Jesus as the servant of God. And so you can listen for that theme of being the servant along the way as we go. And so just in this first sentence, it sets the tone for what is to come. We're going to see Mark demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the one they were waiting for. And so the first thing Mark is going to do in this first chapter is to connect some of those dots for us. So we see this in verses, starting verses 2 and 3. And this is where we kind of, the, 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 what we want to see here is the, see the preparation that John is doing here. Essentially saying, the Messiah is coming. And so verses 2 and 3 say this, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. So this quote that you see here from Isaiah is actually a combination of Malachi 3.1 that says this, See, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. In Isaiah 40 verse 3 that says, A voice of one crying out, Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make straight a highway for our Lord God in the desert. And I'm going to add, this is not part of the quote, but I think if we, I jump down to verse 5 of Isaiah 40 to kind of give us a bigger picture of what they'd be thinking. It says in verse 5, And the glory of the Lord will appear, and all humanity together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So what we see here is that God is sending a messenger to prepare the way for the Messiah, the one sent from God who will rescue the Israelites. So we see here that God is doing something new. Something new is coming. 
but it's not disconnected from what he's already been doing. It's a continuation. It's a new form of that because he's been preparing for this for a long time. Right? When he references Isaiah, that's about 700 years before what we're talking about today in Mark. And between the book of Mark, there's about 400 years of pretty much just silence. There's not a lot going on. There's no prophets. There's not much people are hearing from God. And so it's kind of this, we've been waiting, we've been preparing, and now it's going to break in. And so God is going to call and send a messenger to prepare the way for the Messiah. This messenger would set the stage for him to come. And so let's see in verse 4. So John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And so what's happening here in these couple of verses Well, I think we can see from the beginning, John comes and he's proclaiming it. This is clearly connecting him to the previous verses where somebody would come and proclaim a voice crying out in the wilderness. And so John is calling people to get baptized, but what does that really mean that he's getting them baptized? Um, Is this something that normally happened in that day was the question I had. And so John's baptism here is not something necessarily new, Because if you are a Gentile or a non-Jew and you became Jewish, um, they expected you to be baptized um, to become a full Jew. But what was new and different here is that John's baptism wasn't just for the Gentiles, it was also for the Jews. It was designed for God's covenant people, and it required kind of their repentance in view of the coming Messiah. They had this picture that the baptism or washing made them pure or made them clean. The prophets in the Old Testament um, asked them to repent and confess their sins um, and cleanse from their sins. So what's new is this is connected to God's people. It was to repent and confess their sins in view that the Messiah was coming. And so it's sort of this belief in what was to come. So his baptism with water was limited and really just to prepare you. Yes, they were confessing their sins. Yes, they were seeking forgiveness. But in the end, this is really more of a symbolic thing. Their sins were not fully taken away. They were really pledging that when the true Messiah showed up, I will follow him. So they were being baptized by John. And just so you know why it tells you what he was wearing, which is not a usual thing you see in the Bible. They don't like describe people's outfits like they're coming down the red carpet, right? They tell you this because he is dressed like the prophets of old. And so they're connecting John to the prophets who have come before him. And so they're making that connection, which is why they tell you what he was wearing and what he ate. So those who received it pledged to welcome the one who would come, who we're going to see now, would baptize them in the Holy Spirit. So we see that in verse 7. This is John, and he says, He proclaimed, One who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John wants to make it very clear that his message, his ministry, is not the end of the journey. 
There is more to come, a bigger, greater, fuller experience. So what he was offering was temporary, and it pointed forward to what was to come. It's not quite the fullness that people would experience later. Something much better is coming. And so he's announcing there to prepare themselves for the Messiah through repentance and baptism, to be, re- to be ready to follow him wherever he would lead them. And to say someone greater is coming, right? Because John is essentially saying, hey, you can get baptized, you can be forgiven, you can be cleansed of your sins. That all sounds like really good stuff. And that's what he was really offering them. But he's saying, somebody that can give you even more than that is coming. Somebody greater, somebody better. Someone who John didn't even feel like he could, was worthy to untie his shoes. And just so you know, even servants didn't take people's shoes off. So he's saying, this person is so great, so better than me, that I don't, wouldn't even serve him in this way by taking off his shoes. And I, I wondered this week, like, who would I say is so much greater than me that I would say, they're so much better than me that I'm not even worthy to untie their shoes? Right, because the world has been full of people and great people who changed the world. We have, in our nation's history, we have George Washington, we have Lincoln. In the world, we have Churchill, we have Einstein, we have Beethoven, we have Bach, we have Nelson Mandela. These great people changed the world. But even these people are not qualified to untie the sandals of the one who was to come. Just like John But isn't that what we're all kind of hoping for, especially in this season of our country? The perfect candidate, the great leader, the person who's just going to come and they're going to fix everything. And everything's going to work the way it's supposed to. And people are going to get along and we're going to love each other and everything will be amazing. Right? Isn't that really what we long for, for that person to show up and to make everything right? To make everything the way it's supposed to be? to make peace in the chaos. So that's what I I thought at first, but then I realized, when I was thinking about this, like putting myself in that situation, if I was there and somebody said, can you help me untie my shoes or take my shoes off? I realized that's really not an issue for us. The issue is really, our issue is we feel like we're actually too good to do that. So if somebody asked me to untie their shoes or help them with that, discounting children and people who aren't able to do that by themselves, I get there are situations for that. But like if Jeremy says, hey, can you help me take off my shoes? I would be like, no, right? Because I'm, I think I'm too good for that, right? It's a reverse of what John is saying. I think I'm too good to tie, untie somebody's shoes. I don't do that. That's for somebody else to do or just do it yourself. And so it deals, I think, this, this question of somebody greater to come who we wouldn't be even be able to untie their shoes deals with our pride of, I'm too good to do that. I'm too good to serve. I'm too good to do something that he is asking me to do, but also the greatness of the one who is to come. That we're not worthy. The greatest, best human that ever existed on the planet is not worthy to untie his sandals. So that's who John is preparing the way for. And Mark, in his typical style, 
um, is not going to keep us waiting for anything. Um, you're going to see the word immediately over and over and over again. And so we don't have it immediately here, but he says, someone is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then he picks up in verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. And as soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And so we see this, the arrival, right? The Messiah is here. John prepares the way, and then Jesus shows up. And he's leaving no doubt, right? Somebody's coming, and bam, here's Jesus exactly in the next verse, getting baptized. Um, Jesus in the Jordan, um, We've been doing our biblical theology class during the week, and this week we kind of did some tools, and we're going to start going through themes and connections. And so if you're following along with that and you're looking for some of those, the Jordan River is definitely one of those things that you can trace throughout the history of God's people and what happens there. So if you want to do some extra homework, you can just look at what happens at the Jordan River. But the question you may have with Jesus getting baptized is, why? Why did Jesus get baptized? He didn't need to. He didn't need to be cleansed. He didn't need forgiveness for his sins. He didn't need to repent because he didn't have any, right? He's without sin, the only person ever to live who was completely without sin. And there's a few reasons for that, right? One, he did it as an act of obedience to show that he was in agreement with God's plan and he was willing to fulfill the scriptures, the other thing it does is it identified himself with us, with mankind, and it gave us a actually truly perfect example to follow. And it's sort of a commissioning towards his mission as the Messiah and the servant of God. And so after his baptism, he goes down, he comes out of the water, we see God's confirmation of him through the Spirit coming down like a dove, and God approving, saying, this is my beloved son, or my only son, in whom I am well pleased. So this part where he says, my son, in whom I'm well pleased, is a connection from Isaiah 42.1, where God addresses his servant, who he has chosen, in whom he delights, who he had given his spirit, who would bring justice to the nations. And this servant in the rest of Isaiah would fulfill God's will, and he would suffer greatly while doing so as a guilt offering and a sacrificial lamb. We see that specifically in Isaiah 53. And so this person who's coming, who Jesus is, is identified as the true disciple or the true servant who is approved by God is identified with man through baptism as the servant of God's will. So Jesus arrives on the scene and God confirms, this is my son, this is really the one you've been waiting for. And so let's see what Jesus does next in verse 12. It says, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. Now, Mark's expression here makes it kind of sound like he was forced into the wilderness when it says he drove him out. But it, it wasn't really like that. It was more like he was so compelled by the Spirit 
But the connection was so great that he knew he had to go there, and so he went into the wilderness with a strong sense of the Spirit's direction so that he could be tested. If you want another theme to trace through, you can trace through wilderness throughout all of Scripture and how the wilderness is usually used to prepare God's people. Think of the Israelites in the desert after the Exodus. They wander around so God can prepare them. So he's doing the same thing with Jesus. He's preparing them. So when it says he was being tempted, it means to really to put someone through a trial to demonstrate their character or to prove what kind of person someone really is, right? Because you guys know this just from life and experiences and maybe from people you work with. When everything goes nuts, that's when you find out who people really are, right? How they react, how they respond in those moments, right? You see the real them, And so that's what's happening here. God allowed Satan to tempt Jesus to show that Jesus would not draw away from the Father's will. He would serve God no matter the consequences, no matter what it it meant, no matter where it led, but also to demonstrate his qualification for this mission. As Satan tried to pull him away, as Satan tried to give him shortcuts, as Satan tried to tempt him with glory and with praise, He would not give in to temptation. He would not get sidetracked by Satan. He would overcome, proving he is qualified to be the Messiah, to be the one who could forgive sins. And so Jesus shows up. He's approved by God. He is tested, and he comes through. And so now he begins his ministry in verse 14. And then after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And so Jesus begins to proclaim the good news, the gospel of God. Right? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. What you've been waiting for, praying for, watching for, hoping for, it's here. It has arrived. A new age is dawning. The kingdom is near. Something that's both eternal and lasts forever, both fulfilled and waiting, both present and imminent, both already and not yet. That it's here, but there's still even more to come. And so the Jews were asked to respond because the kingdom of God was at hand. They needed to repent and believe. Now, this seems like two different things, but it's really Um, two parts of the same action. Repenting involves turning away from something, and believing involves embracing something else. Think of like somebody who's in the ocean, and they're holding on to a piece of wood, and they're beginning to drown, and the lifeguard shows up, right? The repenting is saying, I'm letting go of this, and I'm turning, and I'm grabbing on to the lifeguard so that he can save me. Right? The repenting is turning away, and the believing is grabbing on to what can save you. Right? So it's two parts of the same thing. But I also want you to notice here that Jesus begins to preach after John is handed over or he's arrested. Um, this word is also translated betrayed. So that's another thing that's going to show up later. So, John's, as John's ministry ends, the ministry of Jesus begins. 
And so we see here the sort of a passing of the baton, of handing off the mission of God from one person to another. Right? We see Isaiah and the prophets saying that somebody's going to come and they're going to prepare the way. And we see them handing it off to John. And John picking it up and continuing to preach and to point people to the Messiah. And we see John proclaiming that, look, somebody even better is coming. Be on the lookout. And then we see John go away and get arrested. And we see Jesus show up and he's given the baton. And really the whole rest of the book, we're going to see what Jesus does with this. But it doesn't actually take him long for us to see what he's going to begin doing and who he would actually begin preparing himself to hand the mission off to. So we begin to see very quickly that the Messiah, yes, he's here, but he also kind of initiates this new journey as he begins to call others to the mission. And so we see this in verse 16. And it says, As he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, putting their nets in order. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. And so Jesus is walking along. He sees two sets of brothers fishing. He calls them to follow him. Then later he sees the next set. He calls them, and they follow and they do. They decide to follow him. They leave what they are doing, and they follow him, right? Mark tells us immediately, right? There's no doubt. Immediately, they begin to follow. And so, the call is to follow Jesus, to be like him, to be taught by him. And he calls them to be fishers of men, which is kind of a throwback to the Old Testament again, about fishing people out of divine judgment, of rescuing people, and they understand the call, what Jesus is asking them for, at least enough to follow him, to say, this guy is worth following. But if we notice here, the call, even at the very beginning, involves sacrifice, right? It involves giving up their family ties, of they leave their families behind and they go to follow Jesus. They leave their family business behind, right? They leave their father and say, hey, we got to go with this guy. They leave somewhat their certainty, right? Being a fisherman on the sea, doing that, running their business, you can kind of know what's coming down the path. But when you follow Jesus, there's really no way to know what's coming. So the call to Jesus involves sacrifice, but it also requires allegiance and dedication, saying, I'm going to follow Jesus wherever he leads me. I won't turn away, I won't leave to follow other things, but I will press on. I will follow him day by day wherever he leads. Right? It's not just walking with him, like we don't have that privilege, but for them it wasn't just walking behind him and doing whatever he did, but it was really aligning themselves with him to say it's a new way of life to follow Jesus. And so what we're going to see throughout the rest of the book is kind of what's next. What happens after this? We've seen the calling of John to prepare the way to get people ready for the Messiah with his message of, 
um, confessing and repenting and belief and baptism. And then he is handed over. He is arrested. And then Jesus arrives on the scene. He's approved by God. He is the one who has come to make disciples, to be the true servant of God. And he calls us to repent and believe, to turn from whatever it is you're following, whatever you're trusting in, and to trust in him. He is the one we've been waiting for, even now, in this moment. He's still the one we're waiting for to come back and make everything right. And so we have the benefit of being further in history, and so we kind of know that eventually this word for arrested and handed down and betrayed will eventually happen to Jesus. So he's preparing the next set of disciples to carry on his mission, which is kind of where we enter the scene as the next people that get handed the baton to follow the mission of Jesus. And so we are going to discover some more of what happens to the actual disciples and to Jesus. But the question for us as we come to this in the very first chapter at the beginning is, When Jesus calls, will you follow him? Will you let go of whatever you're trusting in and surrender to him to save you? Not just to a better life or an easier life, but to deal with your problem of sin and brokenness, of rebellion against God. Will you let go and follow him? Will you follow and dedicate yourself to following him even though you might not know what will happen or where it will lead you or where he will take you? Will you say, I'm willing to follow you wherever that goes? Right, Because you are the only one who is worthy to follow. Everybody else will let me down. Everybody else will make mistakes. Right, Even our greatest leaders, the best of the world, we know the good about them, and history tells us there was always something else about them that wasn't so great, right? Every single time. But Jesus is the only one who never disappoints. He never lets us down. There's no hidden dark side. It's all good. It's all light, and we can trust in him. He is the one who is worthy. He is the one who still is to come, is here now, and is still to come to make all things right. So the question we look at in the book of Mark is, will you follow? Will you be his disciple? Will you pray with me? God, we come before you this morning and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for a chance just to hear in your word and even in just a short time, Mark gives us a a picture of, of the, just the chain that you've been doing throughout history, that you've been preparing the world for your son. And that when he enters, it's something new, it's something different, it's something greater, it's something better than what anybody could have even imagined. And, uh, and for us, the same is still true. Becoming a follower of Christ is better, is greater than what anybody else has ever told you you could do or any experience, or any club, or any job, or anything else that we think would fulfill us. The only thing that truly fulfills is you. 
So I pray that you would help us to follow you. If you're here this morning and you've never done that, you've never said, I just want to follow Jesus. I want to surrender. I want to let go of everything else and I want to grab onto him and trust him for the forgiveness of my sins, that he died on the cross as a sacrifice for me so that the debt could be paid so that I could have life. That I I urge you to repent and to believe. And if you're here this morning and you're already a believer in Christ, I, I hope that just hearing this will help us to renew our passion, our dedication, our allegiance to Christ to say, it's, it's, he's, you're right, it's better to follow you, even if I don't know where that's leading, than to follow or chase after anything else. So God, I pray that you would capture our hearts again, that you'd help us to see your greatness, to see just how much better, how much more worthy you are than us, that we're not even worthy to untie your sandals. And help us to reflect on, to see your greatness and your majesty, and to be willing to serve you, to follow you above all else. In your name I pray, amen.